Bob McCune took his young son to McDonald's to get some hot and salty fries. He takes him in the car, he goes up to the counter, he orders the fries, he pays for the fries, he comes back to the booth where his son is sitting, and the son is eating those fries, and they're hot and salty and dipping them in ketchup. When McCune said that he reached across the table to grab some fries himself, and his son slapped his hand and said, Dad, those aren't your fries. Those are mine. He said immediately, you know, fireworks begin to go off in his brain. He said, I am the one who brought this child to McDonald's. I am the one who went to the counter and ordered the fries. I am the one who paid for the fries. I am the one who brought the fries back to the table. I am the source of the fries. And yet, his little son, thinking only about self and being selfish, refused to give his dad fries. Then McCune turned that to a spiritual reality. To say in Deuteronomy 8.18, it tells us the Lord is the one who gives us even the ability to make wealth. He's the one who puts breath in our lungs and gives us skills with our brain and allows us to work with our hands. Every good and perfect gift comes from him. But how often do we get self-centered and self-focused and we miss the joy of giving? Take your Bibles this morning and turn to Malachi chapter 3. And today we're going to pick up in verse number 6. And I joked as I uh, read a commentary by a Presbyterian this week. He said that this is the only section in Malachi that Baptists know. So anyway, uh, Malachi chapter 3, we're going to pick up in verse number 6. Because I, the Lord, have not changed You descendants of Jacob have not been destroyed. Since the days of your fathers, you have turned from my statutes. You have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of armies. Yet you ask, how can we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. How do we rob you? You ask, by not making the payments of the tenth or the tithe and the offerings or the contributions. You are suffering under a curse, yet you, the whole nation, are still robbing me. Bring the full tenth or the full tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord of armies. See if I will not open the floodgates of heaven and pour out a blessing for you, Without measure, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not ruin the produce of your land and your vine and your field will not fail to produce fruit, says the Lord of armies. Then all the nations will consider you fortunate for you will be a delightful land, says the Lord of armies. And with that, let's pray. God, we do behold you seated on the throne 
We recognize every good and perfect gift is from you. And so today, as we talk about giving, Lord, would you just remind us that we are just temporary stewards holding on to a few things for a short period of time that truly everything is yours. In your name we pray, amen. As we come to the book of Malachi again, we are about 400, 430 years before Jesus is coming back. The uh, Israelites had been carried off into Babylon around 538. Now they've returned and it's about 430 to 400 BC. And as Malachi, the last prophet of the Old Testament teaches them, he confronts them here in the area of their tithing and their offerings. Now this obviously is not the first First time that Malachi or Malachi as the Lord's mouthpiece has uh, confronted the children of Israel. This is not the first word. If you remember up in the first five verses of chapter one, chapter one, verses one through five, they uh, are rebuked because they doubt God's love. And then in chapter one, verse six through chapter two, verse number nine, they dishonor God in worship. They merely go through the motions. They, they live how they want, act how they want, do what they want. And then they come to church and act like everything's great between them and God. It's kind of the I'm okay you're okay, we'll worship how we want, we'll live how we want. We don't want God to get too, too much into our lives. They dishonor God in worship. Then in chapter 2, verse number 10 through 16, we find that they are disloyal in marriage. They're disloyal in marriage, that the men of that day were divorcing their wives and marrying young pagan women who were turning their hearts from the very things of the Lord. Then in chapter 2, verse number 17 through chapter 3, verse number 5, they are discrediting God's righteousness and holiness and justice and saying, God, you're not fair. You say that evil things are okay and that evil people are good. God, we don't see it from your perspective. And yet... Out of their sinful heart, they try to tell God how to do his job. So now he comes to another area of confrontation. And unfortunately, as we think of this section, this is often the only passage that we're familiar with in the book of Malachi. But here they're disregarding the offerings that they're to bring. They are, are not honoring God in worship, so, and they're not living for God, and God doesn't have their heart. And here's the truth of the matter. Let me just break it really, really down to, down to the, the very, very foundation. If God doesn't have your heart, he's not going to have your wallet. He's not going to have your checkbook. If he don't have your heart. The, the challenge is, is we want to come into church and go through the motions and look like we're okay to everyone else, and our heart may or may not be right. So God's going to confront them for disregarding the tithe and the offering. But it's interesting, in this context, he is calling them to return to him. It's like God puts it out there. Look, I, I, as you look at your life, I want you to trust me and test me with your giving, and you're going to find I am faithful. Trust me. And test me with your giving, and you're going to find out I've got you covered. 
So we turn back to Malachi chapter 3, verse number 6. And the first thing we think about as we open this section are the promises of God. Now, God makes two promises in verse number 6 and one in verse number 7. And the first promise is, is that the Lord does not change. Notice what he says in Malachi chapter 3 and, and verse number 6. The Lord, I am the Lord, I do not change. Some of your versions may read, or I, the Lord, have not changed. God does not change. God does not change. God is the, is the, the, the same. He is eternally the same. Now, that is unlike all of us. All of us change. James chapter 1 puts it this way, that every good and perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or variableness. The word that is used there gives a picture of, of if you put an object and put it outside on a sunny day, then you're going to find that because of how the sun hits that, the shadow is going to fall. There is no variation or shadow of turning, it says in James 1.17. So that that object is going to cast different shadows throughout the day, depending on on what time of day it is. But God says, with me, nothing ever changes. There is no shadow of variation with my character. So I did a little research this week, and I thought about us as parents, okay? As parents. Now, I have four boys, and... And as we think about our kids as parents, does our parenting change from kid number one to kid number baby? All right. I would dare say that everyone's parenting changed somewhere in there. Matter of fact, the study that I read this week said that, here it is, drum roll, parents do not try to show favoritism, but when they do, it's often toward the baby. All right. How many firstborns are here? Firstborns. All right. You all were, you're, you're guinea pigs. How many babies are here? Any babies in the house? All right. The youngest. All right. Stan and Linda, both of you all are babies? Man, they married each other too. Wow. Uh, so the youngest child in the house often gets a little more grace. Parents are a little more seasoned. They, they uh, are not quite as disciplined. When you start out with that first kid, it's da-da-da-da-da-da. And then by the time you get to the last one, uh, it's kind of like, all right, yeah, you know. Fruit snacks for breakfast? Sure, you know. Uh, now, grandparents are different, however. For those who are grandparents, again, most try not to show favoritism, but their favorite is often the oldest, just as an FYI, okay? Here's the picture. God does not show favorites. And in verse number six, he says, look, man, I have not changed. I am still gracious and patient and merciful. If not, I would have wiped you off the map a long time ago. I mean, you look at Israel's history. And their history is constantly one where they are right with the Lord and then they turn to the things of the world and they even turn toward idolatry. Go back and read the books of First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles and you find that time after time, or the book of Judges, we find that they turn from God, turn from God, turn from God. So the Lord says, I do not change. But in verse number seven, the Lord gives us this promise. I do And God does respond to repentance or returning to him. Notice with me in in verse number seven, 
We've seen Malachi 3, 6, the Lord doesn't change. But notice what he says. Since the days of your father, you've turned from my statutes. You've not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord. Return. Come back. No matter how far you've drifted away, no matter how long you've been away, return to me and I will return to you. This is a precious promise. This is one that we can hold to today. James chapter 4 and verse number 8 puts it this way. You draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. You know what the truth really is? Every one of us is as close to God as we want to be. Because the Bible says, if I draw near to him, he'll draw near to me. So why is it that people don't draw close to God? Many because of fear. They think, if I get too close to God, he's going to call me to Africa. All right? You know, he's going to make me give away all my stuff. I'm not going to have any fun in life. You know, I I don't want to get too close. And yet, Psalm 1611 tells us that in his presence is fullness of joy. That every good and perfect gift is from above. So listen, don't fall into the lie of the evil one who says, hey, don't get too close to God. I mean, what will culture think? What will happen in your life? The picture is, is God does respond to repentance. God responds when we return. So you know what? Maybe you've drifted off in in the last week or in the last day, or maybe you've been away from the Lord for 10 years or longer. The Bible promise is still there. If you'll return and you'll draw near, he'll draw near. He'll return. What a precious promise. Now, in light of that promise, then we then begin to look at the indictment of God. The indictment that God has upon these people. God is going to begin to to, uh, call them out for how they are acting. And so that is the first thing then that we see is, there is this aspect of the confrontation. Notice with me in verse number eight. Return to me and I will return. And then they say, yet you ask, how can we return? And then he's asked this question, will a man rob God, yet you are robbing me? The confrontation of God is, is that you are robbing me. You're robbing me. Now it's one thing to rob somebody. And society would hopefully catch you and you would have to pay punishment for that. But it's another thing altogether when you start to mess with God. And God says, you are robbing me. It's interesting. The return part of this, and obviously he's talking about all of this, the aspects of worship, the aspects of marriage, the the aspects of calling his character into question. You just turn to me and you turn to me in that area of giving and I will return, but stop your robbing. Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. Now notice what he says. He says, how do we rob you, ask, by not making the payments of the tenth or the tithe and the contributions. So what is the tithe? Well, back in Leviticus chapter 27, this is one of the easiest verses to just kind of note. Leviticus chapter 27 and verse number 30. Leviticus 27, 30 says, every tenth of the land's produce, grain from the soil, or fruit from the trees belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. So the Lord had a plan for Israel, the nation of Israel. 
that whatever they produced, whatever crops came, they were to give the first fruits, Proverbs 3, 9 and 10. They were to honor the Lord with their first fruits and to give the first tenth of that to the Lord. And so the Lord's saying, look, you're, you're, you're bringing in a harvest that I have blessed you with. Your crops are growing because of my blessing. Your animals are producing because of my blessing, and yet you are not recognizing me. I am the source of the fries. And yet you're slapping my hand. You're not sharing. You're not giving. So there is the command that, or the confrontation that is laid out. Now notice with this command, the Lord says, because they're not doing that, there is a curse that comes. Notice with me in, 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 in verse number nine into 10. Will a man rob God? Yet you ask, how are you robbing me? You're not making the payments of the tenth and the contribution. Notice in verse number nine, you are suffering under a curse. The curse is that you're suffering because of this. You and the whole nation, and you're still robbing me. I, uh, I wrote some people over the last couple of weeks, I, just people that I've, I've either had conversations with about giving or finances, and, and I don't know what anyone gives here. I, I've kind of made that my practice that way. Nobody thinks I favor somebody because they give more than somebody else gives. I just tell everybody, I can be mean to everybody that way, you know? Uh, you guys didn't laugh very hard on that, so anyway, I'm thinking, yeah, maybe they really do think I'm mean. But as I wrote some different people and, and they just wrote back, I, I, you know what nearly every one of them said? And they said this, we have learned that living on 90% or less with God is way better than living on 100% on our own. That's what they said. And so as we look at this, he says now, because you're not giving your suffering, in other words, your crops aren't producing. God said, I want to bless you even more. And yet... You're robbing me. There's the curse. And then the Lord does something very unique. This is the only place in Scripture in which this is found. And it deals with the area of money. Notice with me in verse number 10. He says, you're robbing me. You're under a curse. Verse number 9. Bring the full tenth into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. Test me in this way, says the Lord. Now notice, he says, out of the way of command, bring your tithe. Verse number 10. Look, you need to bring your tithe into the storehouse. That's your tenth. One tenth, ten percent. Bring it into the storehouse. Now, the storehouse was a, a, a building, or was an attachment room to the temple in which they would pay the priests and, and they would, uh, use that to, to furnish supplies and provisions for the priest and for the work of the ministry. So bring your tithes into the storehouse. All right. So there's the command. But then he throws a challenge out here. And the challenge is test me in this. Now, as we think of this challenge and God saying, test me in your giving, this is the only time when in all of scripture, God says, test me. The only time. God nowhere else says, test me. Matter of fact, there were other times when he says, how come you're constantly testing me? But this time he says, you test me in this. You try me in this. 
And God lays out a challenge for all of us. That when it comes to our finances and it comes to our stewardship, that when we trust him, he says, hey, I'm going to take care of you. Test me. God doesn't say test me anywhere else in scripture. Here he says, test me. So for those of you who think, man, I just can't afford to give. I, I don't know if I, man, God's speaking to me about giving more over and above. God's speaking to me. And God says, test me. Test me. Test me. The only time in scripture where God says, hey, I want you to come alongside and I want you to test me. I grew up in a Christian home. My parents did not grow up in Christian homes. My parents both came to know uh, the Lord. My mom was brought to church by a neighbor and came to know Jesus uh, at an early age. And, and my grandparents came to know the Lord later. Uh, my father grew up religious, a member of a church denomination. And in his early 20s, uh, he came to know Jesus as his savior. But my parents, I watched them in their life live, life, uh, live a life of stewardship. There were six of us kids in nine years. My dad was a lineman for Union Electric, now Ameren. And taking care of six kids. My mom stayed home with us. And uh, I've told this before, but every time I think about giving, this is, this is the picture. I go back to an eight, nine-year-old boy. You know, I have a brother who's six, a brother who's four. My sisters are 11, 12, 13. And I, as an eight or nine-year-old boy, I'm sitting by my mom. It's a Saturday evening, and she's writing out her tithe check to the church. And I don't know what spurs the conversation, but she turns from that little desk and looks at me and she says, buddy, there were many months we didn't make it on paper. But they continued to give. And as they tested God and they trusted God, God always met our needs. That's the legacy that's the legacy of someone uh, of a family just coming to know Jesus, really, and just beginning to grow in their faith and saying, God, we're going to trust you. Lord, we got six kids. Lord, I'm staying home. I'm taking care of them. You know, I joke, my dad used to, you know, some of you despise when your power is out. I think my dad used to pray for snowstorms and that kind of stuff, so he'd get the overtime, all right? Uh, anyway. The, the, the picture is, is that's the legacy that has been left to me. Hey, there were months we didn't make it, but God saw us through. Now there's the consequence that he lays out with that. Notice the consequence at the, in verse number uh, 10 into verse number uh, 11. He says, test me in this says the Lord, see if I will not open the floodgates of heaven and pour out a blessing for you without measure. I will rebuke the devourer that, you know, ruins the, the produce and, and your uh, vine in your field is going to, it's going to produce along the way. There's that picture of the consequence that comes as you give. I will bless you. I will open the floodgates of heaven. I will open the windows of heaven. That's the picture. And as you give, this, is, this doesn't mean we're going to be Jeff Bezos, $177 billion. It does say we're going to make it. It does say God's going to see us through. 
it does remind us that Philippians 4.19 is a sure promise. But my God will supply all my needs according to his riches in glory. God will meet our needs along the way. If we're a faithful steward, we're not only a faithful steward, we're a faithful son and faithful daughter. And God will see us through. That's the picture. And that's what he lays out. The indictment is you're not giving. So test me. And then watch me open up the blessings of heaven. You know, your blessings may not come financially. Matter of fact, there are far better blessings than finances. Do, Do you see people around the world today? They have everything and they're miserable. And they have to drown their sorrows in alcohol. They have to turn to this next relationship. They, they have to, to continue to work to, to, to get their self-esteem and their, their sense of self-worth. And yet there's this blessing when God, when I just give and I recognize that you are in charge, that you're the boss, that you're the source, and I'm just a steward. When I come to that place, it's freeing. It's freeing. Let me share with you what one person wrote. They wrote this. Through tithing or giving, God reminds me to dwell on things above. I think my commitment to tithing and giving helps me to not idolize a higher living standard. Many people have uh, nicer lifestyles than I do. Many actually have worse, too. I just tend to think about, uh, I, I tend not to think about that as much. And then they wrote, ha ha. This is a, this is a young couple. When I focus on people who have more than me, I tend to feel more greedy and envious. However, it's hard to develop strong sin momentum. Sin momentum driving me to envy, driving me to jealousy. When I have a habit of giving to my church, my friends and community, giving away money week in and week out, refocuses my attention from earthly investments to heavenly investments. That's the picture. I'm thinking about the things that are beyond, the things that money can't buy and death can't take away. Those are the true spiritual riches of our life. So now let's turn and let's think about the application for us today. Let's think about the application. As we think about the application when it comes to giving, I want to give you a couple of thoughts to think about. So before we step into the parts where you're going to write these things, uh, let me give you a couple of thoughts. First off, the Lord really owns it all. Can I tell you, you own nothing. You came into the world holding nothing. You're leaving holding nothing. Psalm 24, 1 reminds us that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Haggai 2, verse number 6, reminds us the silver is mine and the gold is mine, says the Lord. He owns it. We just get to manage it for a short period of time, but we are called to be faithful managers. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse number 2 says that, it, moreover, it is required of a steward that one be found faithful. So for this short period of time that you live, 70, 80, 90 years, give or take a few, you are a temporary manager of the things that God has given around you. 
Just a temporary manager, temporary steward. And he challenges us in Matthew chapter 6. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupt and where thieves break in and steal. But instead, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust cannot corrupt and thieves cannot break in and steal. God owns it all. We're stewards. Make wise, eternal investments. All right. The largest section on giving in the New Testament is in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. So I want us to turn there quickly. And we're going to fly through some thoughts in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. This is, as we think about the application for today, this is the largest section on giving in the New Testament. Okay? Now there's some debate. Do I have to tithe under the law in the Old Testament? All right? Well, actually... Things were a little bit different in the Old Testament. That was Israel was a theocracy, that God was in control and God was in charge. So they brought uh, tithes as, as a way and means of paying for the temple. They also, also had other tithes and giving practices throughout the year to support the nation. So technically, under every rule of the Old Testament, uh, we find the tithe is a little bit different. But in Matthew 23, 23, Jesus told the Pharisees, you take the mint and the dill and the cumin. You take these little spices and you cut them up real careful so that so that you make sure and tithe on those kinds of things. And yet you're missing the point because he says, Jesus says this in Matthew 23, 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You pay a tenth of your mint and dill and cumin, and yet you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. So they're doing this, they're, they're going measly, measly on this little tithe of, of how much mint that they have. And the Lord says, look, you are neglecting justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And then Jesus says this, these things should have been done without neglecting the others. So he says, hey, give, feel free to tithe, but don't neglect the good characteristics of showing love and mercy to others. But in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, the church in in Jerusalem is suffering. And so the churches in Macedonia are taking a collection through their churches to support and to to help encourage believers in Jerusalem. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and we don't have time to read all of it, he says in verse number 1, we want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that was given to the churches of Macedonia. During a severe trial brought about by affliction, their abundant joy and their extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Now, it's interesting. The Lord is is challenging through the the mouthpiece of of Paul. Hey, churches in Macedonia, man, the church in, in Jerusalem needs help. We need to come together as a family and support these brothers and sisters who are hurting. And he asked them to do that in the midst of their own poverty stricken situations and their own personal desperation. Why couldn't God just, you know, give them all a million dollars and then ask them to do that? No, that's not how it worked. Test me in this. Test me. Trust me with what you have. 
So they begin to give, and they are giving overflows with abundant joy. And in their extreme poverty, they give a wealth of generosity. Now notice down in in verse number five, it says that they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us by God's will. As we think about the application, and we think, how much should I give today? What should I give today? What does this look like? Well, the first thing is, is we're to give ourselves first. We're to give ourselves. They gave themselves first to the Lord. Romans 12, 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your life a living sacrifice before the Lord. The Lord doesn't care about your bank account. He wants all of you. He wants your heart. If he has your heart, he has your bank. He has your wallet. He wants your heart. Give yourself. Now, this doesn't mean that God's going to say you have to give 100% of that. He's just saying, turn over the trust of all of those things to me. Give yourself first. Then notice, as they gave themselves, in verse number two, it says that they gave sacrificially during a severe trial brought about by affliction. They had abundant joy, and even in their extreme poverty, it overflowed in a wealth of generosity. They gave sacrificially. They also gave lovingly. Notice chapter eight, verse number seven. As you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and in all diligence and in your love for us, excel in this act of grace. I'm not saying this as a command. Rather, by means of diligence of others, I'm testing the genuineness of your love. I'm testing your love. We give lovingly. We give out of love, recognizing he's the source. We give out of love. And then we give reflectively. If you don't know 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and uh, verse number 9, you should know it. It says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he were rich, we're talking about his position in heaven, he became poor so that we through his poverty might be rich. Can I tell you today, if you know Jesus, you're rich. You may not have a lot, but if you know Jesus, you're rich. So I mentioned Jeff Bezos earlier. He's worth $177 billion. I thought about this. I thought, what would it take to come up with $177 billion? I thought, if every person I knew left me a million dollars, all right, how many people would it take to come up to his 177,000 people? I'd have to have 177,000 people leave me a million dollars to become as rich as Jeff Bezos. 177, I don't even think I know 177,000 people. And, you know, most of the time, if we can remember 177 names, we're doing good, right? Uh, especially as, as we've come back from COVID, it's like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Where's that name? Ah, it's gone. Listen, if you know Jesus you're rich. His money is going to be here a little while and gone. His soul is going to live eternally in one of two places. And I will tell you, I would rather have $177 in my bank account with Jesus than have $177 billion without him. I'm rich today because I know Jesus. I know I'm forgiven today. I know I'm going to heaven today. I know my name is written in the Lamb's book of life, the record of heaven. I know, I know 
These things are written that you may know that you have eternal life. 1 John 5, 13 tells us, and I know I have it. So I am rich. Give reflectively. Then slide over to chapter 9. Let's look at a couple of verses real quick. We are to give willingly. In chapter 9, verse number 6, the person who sows sparingly will reap sparingly. The person who sows generously will reap generous, generously. Each person should do as he decides in his own heart. In other words, he says, give willingly. Don't let the preacher talk you into it. Don't, Paul says, don't let me talk. You give as you have decided in your heart. The Lord says, test me. How much do you trust him? And then he finally brings home that, that last thought that we are to give cheerfully. Verse number seven, it tells us, not reluctantly or out of compulsion, God loves a cheerful giver. God loves a cheerful giver. As we think about giving cheerfully, uh, one of the, the people that I, I just emailed to, to write, one of the things that they said and shared was how, how fun it is to give uh, and watch God just work in different ways. The blessing of giving is knowing that I'm a small part in blessing others. There were people who mentioned giving to Samaritan's Purse, people who mentioned giving to Connect Ministry. This person mentioned the cooperative program. My money also goes to the cooperative program, and it reaches further than I could personally. So I want us to watch just a short video, and then I'm going to come back and give you a minute. The cooperative program is all of us Southern Baptist churches that we partner together in our giving to support the work of ministry way beyond what you and I would normally see on our own. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Acts 11. From the early church in the book of Acts to the present, churches have voluntarily cooperated together to help each other advance the gospel. Today, 47,000 Southern Baptist churches do that through the cooperative program, a funding mechanism whereby like-minded churches work together to share the gospel and plant healthy churches. The cooperative program is a missional funding mechanism Great Commission Baptists can unite behind. And in a fight where every life counts, every dollar does too. Through the cooperative program, all of us together train next generation leaders at our seminaries, provide domestic and international disaster relief through Send Relief, and send missionaries to plant churches across the country and around the world through the North American Mission Board and the International Mission Board. Seven billion of our neighbors don't know Jesus. Giving through the cooperative program is one way to change that. Whether giving to support our six Southern Baptist seminaries that send missionaries throughout the world, to touch someone in the heart of Tanzania, or to have someone slide into areas of the Middle East under uh, a... Uh, of, of, in a labor field where they are doing secular work but seeking to share Jesus with others, what we find is that when we bring all of our churches together and we give, then it touches people way beyond where we can individually. So of the money that comes in, 2% goes here to St. Louis to help support the ministry. 9% of the money that comes into our church goes to the cooperative program to help support these seminaries, to help support missionaries, to help support the work of the ministry going off uh, in, in different areas of the world. You know what we as a church do? 
We want to say, hey, we're going to give 11% of all the money that comes in and just send it out. We want to be tithers. We want to do better than that. We want to have an offering. And so throughout the year as well, we ask people that they want to give to missions. We have an Annie Armstrong uh, Easter offering that helps to support the North American Mission Board. And as you give to, to our missions giving, it helps to support that. 25% of the money that comes into missions giving goes to the Annie Armstrong offering. We have our Lottie Moon Christmas offering. Lottie Moon was a missionary in China for years. And so as you give to missions, half of that money goes to support international missions throughout the world. And so we want to be not only the ones who, who come in and say, man, we want the ministry to happen here in St. Charles, but we want the ministry to happen throughout the world so that lives can come to know Jesus. But here's the truth of it. You can give every penny that you have and still not go to heaven. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he were rich, he became poor. Jesus became poor. He stepped into humanity. He lived a perfect life, died on the cross, rose from the dead, and he is the only way of salvation. Trusting him alone. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. But for those of us who know him, our giving is an act of gratitude and stewardship that says, Lord, I trust you and I thank you. And that's why we give. With that, let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together and thank you for the precious gift that we have in Jesus. And because we have been given much, help us to be givers. In your name.